there is no longer Jew or Greek, a dialogue on Christianity and race. Hello, I'm Malcolm Cox, and you found a recording of an event that took place on Saturday, the 24th of October, 2020, sponsored by the Thames Valley Churches of Christ and organised by myself and five other friends of mine, uh, Rob and Simon, Andy Azilo, Andy Boachi and Chris Bertels, hoping that we can create a, a safe and healthy space for an ongoing conversation about how we learn how to have conversations about race in a Christian context. So this is what this event is all about. Perhaps the key scripture could be from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul reminds the Corinthians, and it's a healthy reminder for us, that we're all, we're all joined together. We all need each other. And he says that there, he's hoping there will be no division in the body, in verse 25, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. And it's, there's no question that black Christians have been suffering, perhaps more than white Christians, in many contexts. And so this event is not aimed at pointing a finger or assigning, apportioning blame. It's not about saying that we have all the answers or even an answer at all. It's about saying that if we don't talk and if we don't listen, we're never going to learn what God is trying to teach us through all of these events and all of these uh, often traumatic experiences. And we're not going to be able to find the way forward to glorify God and help each other heal and grow and become more Christ-like. So that's the idea of this event. And I hope that what you see in here today will bless you personally and your local community of faith. So what are you going to hear today? You're going to hear from, from Andy and Sandra Azilo from East London talking about what their congregation is doing. You're going to hear some personal sharing about experiences of racism from Mike, Aline and Rachel. And then you're going to hear a 20-minute lesson from Dr. Andy Bawachi based largely on Galatians and the experiences of Paul and Peter in the early church and learning about ethnic differences and how to handle that and what to do and what not to do that has some significant insight that may help us today to learn how to deal with the challenges that we have around race and Christianity, both within and beyond the borders of the church today. So that's our hope and prayer, and I hope that you find something useful. So without further ado, I shall turn it over to Andy and Sandra Izilo. Hi there. Uh, welcome. My name is Andy Izilo. And this is my wife, Sandra. We both live in East London. Uh, we attend a local church and we also serve as part of the leadership of that church. Uh, I'd like my wife to share a bit about her background. Hi there. Yes, so I was born here in Paddington, London, and both my parents are from Dominica. And basically, I've spent all of my life here in London. Uh, for myself, I was uh, born in Nigeria. My father's Nigerian. My mother is from Yorkshire. Uh, I did my primary school here in, uh, in England. I did secondary school mainly in Nigeria, some of it in Canada. I also um, went to university in Nigeria and also went to university here in the UK and I've been a Christian for about 32 years now. Um, I'd like my wife to share so, as a kind of introduction to the kind of things we'll be talking about today. Mm -hmm. Hi there, yes. So basically, um, over the years of the church that I attend, myself and my husband, um, I've had various discussions with different people and um, 
Most of them are women who are women of colour. And uh, we've had lots of discussions. And some of the things that have come up, basically, are things like their young sons, who happen to be black, who are disproportionately disciplined at school compared to their white counterparts, which they find difficult, and the children find difficult as well. And uh, I'm sure you've all heard of the saying of uh, black people having to work twice as hard uh, compared to their white counterparts in terms of career progression. And that's some of the things that they've shared with me. Um, as a young member of the church that I attend, um, I was very shocked when uh, I, I asked the white leader, you know, why there weren't any black leaders in the church. And her response was that um, something along the lines of black people couldn't lead, so they had to be led. And I must admit, I, I was a bit shocked and a bit, um, yeah, just a bit hurt at that comment. I, I really thought that people's views would be different in the church. And um, I think a lot of the times, a lot of um, uh, members of the church I've spoken to who are member, uh, people of colour, they often share that when they explained the experiences of racism to a lot of uh, members who happen to be white and, and have to, you know, very caring people. Um, but I just think it's just not understanding. And how they feel is that their experiences were explained away and uh, devaluing the experience that they've got gone through. I'd just like to comment that that uh, comment by the, the the leader was a long time ago. Yes, uh, it's probably over thirty years ago now, but obviously it still resonates in many ways. You know, a lot of the things that my wife shared uh, have been going on for many years in the lives of so many people of color, um, but uh, the feelings were amplified uh, more recently uh, with some of the events that happened in. Uh, the United States, particularly with the killing of George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, Eric Garner, and Trayvon Martin. And um, these were big issues in the hearts and minds of many of our black uh, members that come to our church. Um, they were big issues in the sense that um, they observed uh, injustices towards black people by white people. Uh, they witnessed police brutality uh, with no accountability, uh, there was blatant discrimination mm. against black people. And this, of course, with parents uh, thinking about children, uh, fears associated with, will the same fate come upon my child? Mm. These were big issues, um, uh, as I explained. Yet, at the meetings of the body uh, of the church, um, the issues seemed to be ignored. Mm. or considered inappropriate for mentioning a church. And this view was probably held by the majority uh, cultural uh, group, which is probably mainly white. However, in the East London area of our church, we decided to have small discussions group to initiate dialogue. Uh, one of the staff members here in East London, Jack Legon, who's actually a white mm. brother who comes to our church, suggested that we set up an East Region Squad. What is Squad, I hear you ask? Yes, well, Squad is an acronym. Um, it stands for Social, Cultural, Unity and Diversity. In the United States, there are several of our churches that we affiliate with that have active squad teams. Uh, and the idea of forming a squad in the East was helped by seeing what some of these churches were doing. And they actually provide information to help 
in terms of setting up a squad. Uh, just to uh, give a bit of background, I'll read a scripture in Ephesians 2:14 to 16. The New Living Translation says, For Christ himself brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility towards each other was put to death. A wonderful verse. Mm. You know, the squad uses verse as a kind of theme verse. The emphasis with squad um, is that it's a spiritual team. So the emphasis is spiritual and it's tasked to advise the leadership of the local church. The advice would be in methods and strategies on how to navigate spiritually through current issues that affect our congregation and our community, such as cultural, racial and diversity issues. The squad may also plan and organize cultural, racial and diversity events to promote unity. And at the direction of the local church leadership, the squad may train small group leaders in the church in areas of culture, race and diversity. I think the idea comes from modeling uh, in the book of Acts chapter 6 when there's a need or there's an indication of discrimination within the, the first or the early, the early church. Uh, the idea is it's led and initiated by church leadership. Eyes and ears for seeing the needs of the members and communicating them to the, the, to the leaders of the church. That's what squad are doing. Uh, and uh, obviously partnering with church leadership to meet those needs and being a light to the world. Currently in the East, we have about 16 uh, members who have indicated an, in an interest in being part of, of the squad. Again, being uh, committed to support the church leadership in this way. Well, I know we've explained a bit about it, but you could ask why it has been set up. Mm -hmm. you know, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26, it reads, and this is when Paul is talking about the body of the church or the, the, uh, or the followers of Christ. It says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. I'd just like to hand over to Sandra. Yes, so really um, this has come about because when the killings happened of these young people in America, it was a very frightening situation for a lot of us, a lot of us people of colour. Um, people I knew were hurting, were crying, um, just distraught, just didn't know what to do with themselves. And I, what was sad about it is that I read lots of um, posts on Facebook of people who lived in America who happened to be um, black, just absolutely petrified of sending their children out, not knowing if they'll come back in a body bag. There was just so much fear, so much just shock, just sent shockwaves. Um, but the sad thing is, I think for a lot of us, we just didn't know where to go with that sadness. Okay, uh, so that's um, a bit of background. There was that pain and hurt in the church. And uh, so for the past few um, months, we've been uh, trying to organize within ourselves uh, a squad group. And uh, uh, that's the process we're in at the moment. We're not there yet. So we have no kind of uh, information beyond the fact that we are forming a, uh, uh, the kind of organizational leadership of that group. Mm -hmm. uh, the squad group is currently about 16, but 
they, um, they, uh, the squad guys in the, in the US suggested we have a core group that just manage the affairs of, of, uh, the, of the squad. And that's where we're at in the East at the moment, forming that group. Um, what are we hoping to achieve uh, with squad? I'd like my wife to share. Well, we'd like actually to have it as a vehicle of change, somewhere where people can go to if they feel like they've been marginalised, somewhere where they can express their hurts and feel safe, and somewhere where we can hold out a torch to the world to show how to behave in such circumstances, because a lot of this really is, is hatred. So we want to be able to hold out a message of hope to the world. Thank you for that. Uh, yes, uh, again, the group is broader than uh, just racial issues and broader than black-white issues, but uh, this is a starting point and we're hoping it will uh, develop and grow and uh, have an impact, uh, not just in our church or in our churches, but outside our churches mm -hmm. as we uh, strive to see the gospel preached, bringing peace and, and uh, just uh, uh, dealing with issues of hurt uh, that we see around us. Thank you for attention. Bye-bye. Hello, my name is Eileen and I'm a disciple of over 20 years with the ICOC Church here in Manchester. I've been asked to make a contribution to this event today that's looking at the topic of race and racism. Before I do that, I would like to say a thank you to the organisers of this event. I'd like to just share a snapshot of my experiences and I'm going to do that through a poem entitled My Journey. As children, we have such innocence. We accept without question. We love unconditionally. I laugh when I remember my younger self of about three years of age, running into the house that I then lived in, in a small village in Kent, where I was cared for by two white people. I remember saying, it's that black man again. That black man was my dad. It's funny, when I look back now, I just didn't see us as being the same. I was just a kid, like all the other kids in the village that I played with. I didn't see them as white, or maybe I just didn't see me as black. When I was about eight years old, I moved to the smoke, otherwise known as London, where I returned to live with my Nigerian parents. My eyes were opened, sharply, painfully at times. I remember white faces that sometimes looked at me with a sneer or a scowl. White men with skinheads, turned up tight jeans and Doc Martens. They walked towards me angrily with a menacing look on their faces. I'm scared. I'm not sure what I've done. They don't know me and yet they seem to hate me. I learn to build a wall. So when I hear that N-word, it just bounces right off me. Yeah, it bounces. Yeah, I still feel an ouch. At school, I had lofty aspirations to be a lawyer. Now, hold on there. 
my careers advisor must have thought. I was advised instead, why not be- consider becoming a legal assistant? I mean, who did I think I was trying to aim so high? Nonetheless, I believe I've arrived at a place in my career that's right for me. But I consider how many dreams of children of colour I derailed by that lack of vision. Throughout my career, always working harder, seeking to do better, trying to prove I'm more than what you think I am. I'm working hard, not just to prove myself, but also to challenge that perception. That underlying belief that we're not as good, not as competent, not as professional. If I do well, that reflects well on my people. If I do badly, that too reflects on my people. It's an extra load I carry. Try to understand me as I speak. I talk with passion, with strength, with heart. Please don't confuse that with being angry. Don't frame what you don't understand into the narrative of the angry black woman. No, that's not me. I just care with passion. Wasn't Jesus like that? That's not to say I don't get angry, but I express a righteous indignation. Indignation at the ongoing injustices against my people. My heart is deeply saddened. The resounding question, how long, O Father, how long? This is not just an American thing. It's a UK thing. It's a worldwide thing. An example, Cambodia, 2019. I notice the look of loathing in the faces of some of the Khmer people that I meet. I notice the efforts made to stop their skins getting darker. They didn't want dark skin like mine. So wearing a polar neck jumper in 35 degree temperature and higher was quite normal. Crazy, huh? Whilst in Cambodia, I visit a well-known local orphanage. I notice how the children were already conditioned to view dark skin as bad. But their innocence allowed curiosity. In the only way I knew how, I would touch my lovely chocolate skin and signal, this is good, and smile broadly. They smiled back. They came closer. This is why Jesus says we should be like little children. Sometimes I get weary. Sometimes my hope wanes. But I'm thankful God gives me what I need to stay in the battle. To fight with love. Thank you so much for listening. Morning, my name is Mike D'Souza.
I was born in North London in the mid 60s. And for me growing up, some of the earliest messages I received was that being black wasn't just about being different. It was about being unwanted and being unwelcomed. The house we grew up in was utterly derelict. It was in one of the poorer areas of London. It was so bad that it was actually featured on national television. In fact, I want to show you a short video clip from the news article that aired back in the early 70s. Well, this is it, the Marriott Road show house. And it's just one of a select development of more than 2,000 similar houses in this area. This one's been divided up into four family flats, all sharing one bathroom and one lavatory, and each enjoying panoramic views over a rather unusually landscaped garden. Of course, as you'll have gathered by now, this is no ordinary show house, open to the public in order to try and sell it off. In fact, this house has been thrown open by an organisation called the Holloway Tenant Cooperative, and they've called it an anti-show house. And the idea is to illustrate just how bad housing conditions are in this area. The worst enemy of all these old Victorian houses is the damp. And this house has been fighting a losing battle with the damp for at least 20 years. The effect is that everywhere the walls are covered in mildew, the wallpaper is peeling off and the plaster is crumbling down from the ceilings. Above the staircase there are places where there's no plaster left at all and so many banisters are missing that you take your life in your hands simply walking up and down the stairs. In fact, the condition of the house is so bad that three of the families have already moved out. But the top floor is still occupied by Mrs D'Souza, who lives here with her three children. She's been here for the past ten years, and this one room serves as bedroom and living room for the whole family. She also has a small kitchen, a cupboard which houses the stove and the kitchen sink, and another room which she claims is so damp that it can only be used as a storeroom. In the room that the family does use, there's a large hole in the middle of the ceiling, and whenever it rains, the water drips down onto the floor. You know, even though our house was in such a terrible area of London, even on the road I grew up on, there were still signs in various uh, house windows which said rooms to rent, no dogs and no blacks. And so that's the message I grew up with, was that black people were not appreciated, certainly not valued. I remember walking down the road holding my mother's hand as a four-year-old kid and people spitting on my mother and calling her nigger and telling her to go back to her country. I received uh, just consistent regular racism all throughout my, my secondary school days. I went to a, a, um, a boarding school where it was 98% white. And so I would be called nigger, I'd be called coon, I'd be called wog, I'd be called all kinds of things on a daily basis. And that became just par for the course. I guess some of the, the worst impacts of, of racism is just the disparity in healthcare between black people and white people. And for me, that hit home when my mother was taken into hospital in her mid-50s, she was suffering from ulcers, and it's, ulcers are not life-threatening. But she couldn't keep any food down, she couldn't keep any water down, and so she was, she was admitted to hospital. And while she was there, they couldn't get a drip into her arm because her, they couldn't find a vein. Her, they said her skin was too dark. And so they ended up putting the drip, the IV, uh, into her foot. The consequence of that was it meant that she was less mobile. She couldn't get up and walk around. And, 
And given the fact that she was already dehydrated, she should have been given anticoagulants, something like heparin or warfarin or aspirin, just to, to keep the blood from clotting, and yet none of that was given to her. In fact, no surgical stockings to, to prevent deep vein thrombosis. And, and so ultimately, she, she developed a, a blood clot which uh, went to her lungs, triggered a, eventually triggered a heart attack, and she died uh, at, at a very young age. And you know, for me, not having my mother around to see my children grow up, to see them get married and have children of their own, that to me is probably one of the, the most painful aspects of being black in the UK. Hey guys, I'm Rachel Corson. I live in London. I'm a member of the International Church of Christ in London. I live in Harrow in Northwest London. And I put off filming this video after Malcolm asked me to share uh, because I hate talking about race. I hate talking about racism. I hate talking about anti-blackness. I hate living it. And yet it's impossible to escape. Uh, I guess we've all been forced to have more of those conversations since George Floyd was murdered and we've seen, I wouldn't go far as saying that the church is polarised, but we've definitely seen contrasting views, contrasting opinions. There've been some heated conversations, lots of people have been hurt. Uh, I know this because I've had several disciples in completely unconnected ways contact me really upset because of conversations they've had around race and I think part of it is in our British culture. We don't talk about, we don't talk about race. We don't talk about our problems. So I actually wrote down a bunch of my own experiences that I was going to share. Uh, but then after praying this morning, I thought, you know, what, I'm putting this off because it's, it's painful. <laughs> I hate crying and this whole racism stuff and just some of the abuse I've received recently has made me want to cry a lot. Uh, so I decided after praying, I'm just going to talk from the heart guys and this week has been particularly interesting. It's Black History Month. I run a small business called Afrocentrics and we make natural hair care products for Afro and curly hair. So I talk about hair a lot and I talk about Afro hair and it's Black History Month. So I've been sharing just interesting things on Twitter about the history of Afro hair. And I shared what I thought was a very harmless tweet that went viral about how some African women used cornrows, which were, you know, we'd been using them for generations, for centuries before slavery. Uh, just for cultural reasons, but they use them to, to kind of deliver messages to each other. So things like a certain pattern that would show that there was a river or there was a mountain to help others to escape slavery. And this went viral. And what I didn't expect is that I'd have to mute it and log off Twitter because people just started being nasty. So I'm not going to go into all of it because a lot of it was violent. A lot of it was sexual. A lot of it contained a lot of swear words. I'm not even going to read them, but you can see it if you want to. Uh, but I had to re report, well, someone from my team reported a bunch of accounts because uh, people were saying, well, no, black people are stupid. They wouldn't have done that. Um, they were calling me ugly for some reason. They were telling me I was an idiot. I was being told to go back to my country. And that's really interesting because I was born in Britain, but I'm often told to go back to my country. And even though we like to claim racism doesn't exist here, I've been called the N-word in the street in, in my country where I was born. And when we step back and look at why I'm even in this country to begin with, my my dad was born in London because his parents, uh, one from Ghana, one from the Netherlands, 
they were both nurses in the war and they met here and he was born here but then because of the racism they left they moved to Canada and um the only reason my dad moved back so he grew up in Canada and then went to boarding school in Ghana and then there was a military coup after Ghana gained independence so Ghana was under colonial rule as in the British were in charge of Ghana it wasn't called the Go it wasn't called Ghana it was called the Gold Coast because that's where the British went to extract gold so Ghana had been underdeveloped Ghanaian people decided they wanted independence and Kwame Nkrumah became our first president, who was the first, it was the first moment of independence across sub-Saharan Africa. Why am I telling you this? Well, it links to my personal story and why it's really offensive when I'm told to go home. So the British government, and this is very widely publicised, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, I promise you it's not, you could just read about this in books. Uh, the British government decided that it would destabilise the empire if all of the African countries and all of the, the, um, the colonies wanted independence. So they supported what they thought was good for the world and for the empire. And they supported a military coup where Rawlins took over. And uh, Rawlins, I won't go into details, Rawlins and my father had some problems. And <laughs> um, my dad was being like shot at, thrown into prison all the time. So he moved here. So my being in the UK is because of this kind of, you know, structural system <laughs> of oppression that led to my family having to move here. And then throughout my life, so from primary school, where I would finish my work early, I would be very bored at school, I would get top marks all the time, but rather than be set extra work, like this little white girl in my class, Sarah, who was one of my good friends, and she would finish early as well, and we would chatter, she would be set extra work, I would get in trouble. If I was bored in class and I read a book, I would get detention for that. Um, it, it, you, you see racism throughout education, and that went on, this idea that I couldn't be advanced. I was one of a few black girls and I was always being kicked out of class, put in detention. And I was such a goody two-shoes. I'm a very shy introvert. I don't like getting in trouble. I did eventually start to sin and play up, but it's really interesting that it was almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I was treated like I'm going to be naughty because I was a black girl. And I've experienced being over, <laughs> over policed. Like my, my husband, Jack, some of you guys might know him. He's Welsh and he, <laughs> When we drive, he doesn't get stopped by the police. And that shocked me when we first got married because ex-boyfriends who had been black, we had to work in extra journey time because we'd be stopped and harassed by the police. When I'd be driving around with my brothers or my dad would be stopped and harassed by the police. And it just blew my mind <laughs> being married to a white man and seeing that he just navigates a completely different world. And more and more things that I thought, I think they're being racist, but I'm not sure, I could easily check. So for instance, when we're trying to rent homes, um, I would be told there's no there's no rentals. Jack would be shown a whole bunch. And then sometimes Jack would make an appointment. And when I'd turn up, they'd suddenly say, oh, um, we can't have families here, no children, even though the current tenants had a family. So all of this stuff is widely documented. I'm going to stop talking now. But in everything, so education, healthcare, I mean, black women are four times more likely to die in childbirth. I almost died in childbirth with my first child. Um, I was given less. I almost had a C-section, an emergency C-section, and they applied anaesthetic only to half of my body because they didn't give enough. And I did my master's in medical anthropology and I'd actually read about this phenomenon that black people are seen as stronger, more resilient, therefore we need less painkillers. My brother had had a surgery a few, about a month before I gave birth and the same thing happened to him. He was only given enough anaesthetic for half of his body. So in education, in healthcare, just in conversations in the street, um, in employment. So I'd actually explicitly been told when I worked at Cadbury's, um, a girl on my team told me that she'd seen my CV when I applied for another job. 
um, but they'd looked at my name, which was Chamasi at the time, and they said, oh, she's not going to fit in here. So in, in education, we're discriminated against. And it really breaks my heart when my brothers and sisters in Christ don't see these struggles and think, you know, if one part suffers, we all suffer together. So I really hope that me sharing this helps to just give a hint of what it's like being black and British. And it's not pleasant because I just want I just want to live my life. I don't want to think about race all the time. I always get accused of making everything about race, but I'm not the one who does that. It's when I'm called the N-word in the street. It's when I'm discriminated against because of my skin colour. It's when I'm treated differently in every walk of life that I can't escape the fact that we have a racism problem to deal with. And the culture of the world should absolutely not be in the church, but we've come from the world, therefore it is. So I hope that is helpful. And I'm going to stop there. Hello, my name's Andy Boachi, and I'm going to steer the next part of uh, our session today. I understand that these are difficult conversations to have, uh, that the this is you know difficult terrain to navigate, uh, and so all I suggest and all I hope is that you um, listen um, with an open mind and an open heart, um, and hopefully you take away something from uh, what I share today. Um, these are difficult things to talk about. Uh, I'm not trying to offend anyone, but if that does happen, then I apologise in advance. Um, so please, just as I say. Um, uh, carefully weigh what I say with an open mind uh, and we'll, uh, we'll navigate this terrain together. Recent discussions about the politics of race most directly linked with the phenomenon of police brutality against black people in the United States has ignited not just debate about race concerns in churches but the broader questions about Christianity and political engagement. The ancient world didn't distinguish between religion and politics and identity and culture in quite the way that we do in the modern world. One need only think about how ancient Jews divided the world into Jews and Gentiles to realise that this was more than just an ethnic distinction. It spoke about which gods the Gentiles worshipped, their appreciation of ritual purity, their ethical behaviour, their value systems and their social norms. Culture, politics, religion and social identity were thoroughly intertwined. Now I say this because in the aftermath of the murders of George Floyd, of Trayvon Martin, of Breonna Taylor, of Eric Garner and the list goes on, certain believing voices have demanded that we keep the gospel and politics separate. I've heard people say things like Jesus didn't care about politics and that we're here to preach the word and not to get embroiled uh, in political issues. I've heard all sorts of things like that emerging from online discussion platforms. Now, whilst I know what inspires these sentiments, we'd have to ignore huge swathes of the biblical testimony in order to maintain that the church has no responsibility in political witness. You'd have to completely ignore the minor prophets and large sections of the major prophets as well. You'd have to read Romans 13, 1 through 7 in extremely narrow fashion in order to maintain a politically disengaged gospel. The book of Revelation, with its savage critique of empire, would have to be removed from your Bible. And you certainly couldn't have a Jesus criticising kings the way uh, he did, for example, in Luke 13, where we read the following. At that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Jesus said to them, go and tell that fox for me, listen. I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. 
Now, why on earth would Herod want to kill Jesus? Surely not for preaching um, that people should love each other or that they should care for the poor or speak up for the marginalised. No, certainly not. Rather, it's quite precisely because, as the prophet spoke of, the messianic kingdom would only come with a severe critique of the ruling classes. And when the true king was made known, all phony rulers would be shown up for the sham that their leadership and rulership really was. So enter Jesus, preaching the kingdom of God, casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow and on the third day finishing his work. That is proclaiming the messianic kingdom. He calls Herod a fox because foxes were known to be cunning and conniving. And this is how Jesus saw Herod's kingship. It was precisely the kind of sham monarchy that was ripe for judgment when the messianic kingdom came and God installed his true king. And Herod didn't want his cushy lifestyle being disrupted. Like it or not, a non-political Jesus is a non-biblical Jesus. In his famous sermon, Jesus declared blessing on those who hunger and thirst for justice. In Greek, the word for justice and the word for righteousness is in fact the same word. Indeed, justice is central to the kingdom of God proclamation, as the prophetic witness to the kingdom routinely attests. We read, for example, in Isaiah 9, for a child has been born to us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. His authority shall grow continually. There shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with righteousness and justice from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's Isaiah 9, 6-7. And Paul, with whose work we'll be most centrally concerned with today, followed suit. Paul's single greatest challenge was uniting Jew and non-Jew together as people of God. The term that he uses to explain how he achieved this is justification by faith. And that's mentioned for the first time in Galatians 2 verse 16. Now it's in the context of this first reference to justification in Galatians 2 16 um, that we'll um, uh, examine the work today. So what I want us to do is establish the context within which justification by faith works. And we'll do that by looking at Galatians 2, 11 through 14. In those passages, Paul recounts an occasion in Antioch where upon the arrival of some of James's colleagues, that is James, the brother of Jesus, that Peter decided he could no longer consort with the non-Jewish contingent of the early church. He withdrew from the mixed fellowship table, causing Paul to absolutely blow his top. Now, my argument today is a simple one. This was an occasion of ethnic marginalisation in the early church. And this was the incident that most directly inspired Paul's commentary on what it meant to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So in what follows, I want to briefly unpack this position and then suggest how Paul's rebuttals can inform modern debates on ethno-racial unity and reconciliation within the church. Firstly, then. The incident in Antioch was actually the third of three ethnic marginalisation stories that Paul recounts in Galatians 1 and 2. The first is Paul's own harassment of the early Jesus movement, which he recounts in Galatians 1, 13 to 14. This is then followed in Galatians 2, 1 to 5 by the story of some false brothers attempting to bully Paul's Greek co-missionary Titus into being circumcised. Both those texts are on the pre-reading. 
Only then does Paul relate the drama in Antioch, and his rationale seems clear. Paul seems to be saying that I've seen this kind of marginalisation before, and this is yet another example of it, and it's going to damage the community. So we ought to understand the incident at Antioch as an ethnic marginalisation drama. Though Gentiles eventually numerically outnumbered Jews in the ancient Jesus movement, they were still a political minority, in the sense that they were Gentiles entering into a Jewish messianic movement and into the heart of a Jewish messianic story. So it's with this contextual understanding in place that I want us to unpack Paul's response and suggest how it serves to inform contemporary discussions about Christianity and race. Firstly, Paul opposed Peter to his face and in front of an audience. We read that in Galatians 2 verse 11. Now, as you can see on the handout, I've noted the sentiments of some of the early church fathers who found this whole debacle at Antioch incredibly distressing and very embarrassing, as a number of the church's critics were using it as ammunition against the church. And yet, here we have it. Now, Paul's actions here in publicly um, dressing down Peter in front of everyone uh, is significant for two reasons. Now, initially, here we have the second of two occurrences in Galatians 2 of the Greek word prosopos, which means face. In Galatians 2, 1 to 10, Paul alludes to the disregard that he had for the office of the Jerusalem leaders. In Galatians 2, 6, we read, and from those who were supposed to be acknowledged leaders, what they actually were makes no difference to me, for God shows no partiality. Now, in Greek, that phrase, God shows partiality, is an idiom. It literally reads, God does not receive the face of a man, doesn't receive the prosopos of a man. That's to say, in other words, that you can't impress God by flaunting your beautiful, shiny face in front of him. He simply says, yep, seen it all before, not impressed. God does not show partiality. So just as God um, is unimpressed by the face of a man... I think we're to understand that Paul is not intimidated by the face of Peter when he says in Galatians 2.11, I opposed him to his face. I think that connection is implied. I think that connection is strengthened by the fact that the occurrence of face in Galatians 2.11 appears just five verses after um, the original um, occurrence of prosopos, the Greek word for face. But secondly, and perhaps most importantly, that in both cases, in Galatians 2.6 and in Galatians 2.11, it's Peter's face which is at issue. And I think this substantiates the overall point. Paul raised this challenge, unintimidated by Peter's authority. But the second reason is connected to Galatians 2 verse 2, where Paul says he presented the version of the gospel that he preached to Gentiles before the leaders in Jerusalem in a private meeting. I think Paul wants the instance in uh, Antioch to be contrasted with this private meeting. Paul clearly knows how to pull the leaders aside and have a private meeting if need be. But for something as serious as this, for the marginalisation of the Gentiles, he very non-privately, very publicly um, addressed Peter. Not only does he address Peter, of course, but he's addressing those who were either consciously or subconsciously um, influenced by Peter's actions. And so I think we should understand this. When the truth of the gospel is jeopardised because a group is being marginalised, it must be publicly declared within the community and not whispered about in dark corners. Neither embarrassment nor guilt ought to become barriers to the conversations. 
Paul, I suggest, would firmly be in support and favour of the unashamed and public anti-racist demonstrations associated with the Black Lives Matter movement. And by that, I mean the social movement and social sentiment and not some political pressure group or institution bearing the same name. Paul would resist the muting of conversation about race within the church. Um, And that conversation can be muted in several ways. There can be the assumption that the church is somehow above or immune to such marginalisation. Self-righteous tone policing and accusations of um, over-visceral reactions of black believers. There's the over-sentimental pandering to the sensibilities of white believers who are either uh, too guilty, too ill-informed or too tired of hearing about it to fully engage. There are some who may even say that because they've been hurt by black believers or hurt by black people in the past, that they can't engage with these uh, conversations. Not to say that that might not be true, of course, but it's certainly no reason not to engage in this dialogue. All of these represent pernicious hindrances to the truth of the gospel, which only exacerbate the marginalising of believing minorities. And brings me to my first question. How easy is it to speak about issues of race within your own church circles? And what are the barriers to this dialogue? Secondly, let's consider the term, the truth of the gospel. In Galatians 2.5, the truth of the gospel was in jeopardy if Titus was coerced into being circumcised. In Galatians 2.14, Peter and those persuaded by his aloofness were said to not be walking in line with the truth of the gospel. In both cases, it appears to represent the inconsequence of ethnic difference within the gospel. If Titus was circumcised, it would dictate the message that Jewish ethnicity was a necessary component of the gospel. If Peter's actions went unchecked, the message was that the Gentile ethnicity was of an inferior class to Jewish ethnicity. In both cases, an ethnic hierarchy would be established within the community which relegated any non-Jewish ethnicity. If the truth of the gospel really does refer to the inconsequence of ethnic difference, then the marginalisation of black Christians is patently anti-gospel and anti-Christian. In other words, if it goes unchallenged within believing communities, it's not just that racism has crept into the church or that community cohesion has somehow been disturbed. Rather, it's that the very gospel of Jesus itself has been utterly compromised. Jesus typically referenced marginalised classes to demonstrate the meaning of the gospel. We need think only of the faith of the Syrophoenician woman, the charity of the Good Samaritan or the gratitude of the Samaritan leper in Jesus' story. These stories all corroborate the understanding of the truth of the gospel as the inconsequence of ethnic hierarchy. At its heart, the truth of the gospel has the removal of all domination and the refusal to privilege any one group or class over another. If Jesus championed Samaritans and Paul championed Gentiles, then by definition one cannot be racist and Christian. If Titus couldn't be fully Greek and fully Christian, or the Gentiles in Antioch be fully Christian and fully Gentile, then what it said was that they had to embrace Jewish cultic practice in order to be accepted. And in that instance, they would be victims of the very false gospel that Paul mentions in Galatians 1, 6 through 9, and which he strives so hard to indict. If being black and being being Christian requires some manner of social modification of blackness, then we have an analogous problem, which brings me to my next set of questions. Do you prefer Afro-Caribbean disciples to anglicise in some way? Do you feel intimidated by 
passionate black sisters and somehow read their passion as anger. How aware do you think you or other white believers are of the kind of issues that black believers faced or face all the time? The very kind of issues that um, Aline and Rachel and Mike spoke about so passionately and eloquently in the sharing earlier. Thirdly, racism can be uh, um, and easily be spread and rationalised within believing communities. Paul's use of the term joined him in this hypocrisy in Galatians 2.13 implies that Peter's actions influenced Barnabas and the other Christian Jews not to walk uprightly with the truth of the gospel. The believing Jewish community may well actually have had good reason to fear reprisals and um, and um, attacks from Jewish hardliners. So when it says that Peter's actions were because he feared the circumcision lobby, there could actually be good reason for that. It's not just a question of, Paul, uh, of Peter trying to preserve his reputation. Yet one need only think of Paul's yeast metaphor in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6. It takes just a little bit of yeast to make a whole batch of dough rise. And in the same way, it takes just a few Christians to be lackadaisical, socially disconnected, intellectually stubborn, narrow-minded or closed off to the experiences of black believers for the rank and file to live in uncritically self-justified denial. Which brings me to my final set of questions. Do you understand why reacting to Black Lives Matter with, well, all lives matter, is a failure to understand the problem that's being addressed? Do you understand how brushing issues of race under the carpet by responding to them with religious rhetoric is hypocritical? Can you see how responses like God loves everybody and I don't see colour scupper and trivialise the salient issues of race and Christianity? Finally, then, the answer that Paul gives to the issues raised by the ethnic marginalisation of Gentiles at Antioch can be summed up thusly, new life and crucified identity. In Galatians 2, 19 through 20, Paul experiences crucifixion with Christ, which he describes as dying to the law in order that he might live to God. In the same way, in Galatians 5, 24 to 25, Gentiles are said to have crucified the flesh with its associated lusts and passions and now live anew by the power of the Spirit. In Galatians 6, 14 to 15, even the cosmos itself has been crucified to Christ and has emerged as a new creation. To be justified by faith is to be crucified with Christ and reborn by the power and the energy of the Spirit. Now notice that when the cosmos is crucified in Galatians 6, 14 to 15, the emergent new creation renders that polarity, circumcised versus uncircumcised, as utterly defunct. God's new world necessitates the destruction of ethnic hierarchy. Just as Jesus was crucified and raised again, those who are in Christ um, have been crucified, have been born anew and now have the new covenant status before God in which there is no domination, there is no dominant group and there is no ethnic hierarchy. All external markers of identity are thoroughly relativized and that's why we can celebrate difference in God's people. Hence, the truth of the gospel is utterly compromised by ethnic marginalisation. Such marginalisation is predicated on people uh, making important external markers of identity. Now, imagine if Paul were to be around today and to encounter uh, a, a, an ethnically diverse church. If that church were, firstly, uh, a place where the dominant culture was ignorant of its privilege, 
Secondly, a place where black disciples were marginalised. Thirdly, a place where non-European believers, even if it's subtly and indirectly, were pressurised into Europeanizing to be accepted. Where fourthly, if leaders were coy or reticent about addressing issues of ethnic marginalisation. And fifthly, if minority voices were muted for convenience, then there's no reason to suspect that Paul's challenge to the church would be any less caustic than it was to Peter and his backers in Antioch, or that he would be any less accusatory of the modern church's failure to uphold the truth of the gospel. Paul would boldly declare that black lives matter, irrespective of the um, sensibilities of those who tacitly disagreed. Let me say this by way of conclusion. The purpose of today is to encourage honest dialogue that promotes a greater sense of unity amongst us. It's not intended to point fingers or to make people feel uncomfortable, although those two things may well be corollaries of anything that I've said today. This is Paul's parting shot, the Gentile believers who remained loyal to his gospel. We read it in Galatians 6 verses 9 to 10. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially those who are of the household of faith. I want to say this finally to the black believers listening today. Navigating this journey is going to take some patience. There are some people who are confronting these issues for the first time in their lives, and we ought to be patient to allow the Spirit to do his healing and transforming work, and we ought not to grow weary with um, the discussions. I think black believers ought to educate themselves about the pivotal role that Africa and African Christians made in contributing to the formation of ancient Christianity. I think black believers should always be vocal and yet godly um, about issues of marginalisation and remember, most of all, to be good to all and especially to those of the household of faith, irrespective of what colour they are. After all, as Paul said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man, and there is not male and female, for you are all, whether black, white or otherwise, one in Christ. Galatians 3.28 I'd like to conclude with the words which Paul concludes Galatians with in Galatians 6.18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. I sincerely hope that what you've heard and seen today will be uh, helpful to you. Let me finish off by reading a scripture from Revelation chapter 22, which I think is a great vision of how the kingdom is meant to be, both on this earth and in its ultimate manifestation. In chapter 2 of Revelation, we are told that there's a, war, a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Each side of the river uh, is the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And what are these leaves for? What's this tree for? And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The healing of the nations. Let's hope and pray that all of what's gone on recently regarding racism, if, if nothing else, it's a lesson so that we can learn how we can be the agents of God's Spirit such that his kingdom and, his, and the church congregations that we have become a place for the healing of the nations. If that's going to happen, we're going to need to talk, we're going to need to listen, and we're going to need to open our hearts to what the Spirit is teaching us.
So I do hope and pray that what you've seen and heard today will do that for you and your local congregation. We'd love your feedback. I would and everybody else organising this, whether we have a follow-on event on the same kind of topic or whether we do other topics, we'd like to know what you think. So please, you could send me an email at my email address, which is malcolm at malcolmcox.org. You could also find me online at the website of the same name, malcolmcox.org. Or you can speak to anybody if you happen to know somebody who was there, any of our local congregations. If you're a member of them, then you can feed back to me. And if you're someone who's not a member or part of our Fellowship of Churches, I'm really glad you're uh, taking the time to watch and listen to this. And if you have some insights from Scripture or from your own experience that might help us, we would love to have that. So thank you very much, and I hope that all of this has been a blessing to you, and more importantly, that it brings glory to God. Take care, and God bless.